Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we are discussing the 1930 version of All Quiet on the Western Front. The German remake is currently nominated for nine Academy Awards, but we wanted to focus instead on Lewis Milestone's classic adaptation of Eric Maria Remarque's novel, starring Lou Ayers as the young German soldier Paul Baumer, who becomes disillusioned with the war. This film was a blockbuster hit at the time. It was a huge phenomenon. We will be discussing the history. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I absolutely love it. And the fact that this new version is nominated for all these Oscars seemed like an ideal moment to do an episode on it. I have not seen the new version because um, life is short. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not going to give myself a migraine by watching this movie. But Gav, you have watched it. So do you want to give like a little bit of an intro to that movie before we get in the weeds of the 1930 version? Yeah, so I had a really interesting experience this week, basically watching these two films back to back. They come from completely different eras of film history. The original was pre-code, came out very shortly after sound was introduced. And the new one is, I mean, it's slightly insulting to describe it as a blockbuster, but it is very much action focused and modern. And it is got a lot of kind of extensive, expensive trench warfare scenes. Both of them are adapted from the novel, so it's not like this is a direct remake of a previous film. But um, the new version, I did not think much of by comparison. It really kind of misses a lot of the moral and political purposes, I think, that are really strongly portrayed in the 1930 film. And I find it slightly baffling that this one has got like 14 Oscar nominations, um, partly because it's neither glowingly well-reviewed in general and nor is it kind of a really big mainstream hit. I kind of think maybe it just had a really good campaign in the industry or something or possibly a lot of people just don't really know much about war cinema, which is wild to say because it's a hugely popular genre and has been since the dawn of movies. But um, we have talked about several war films on this podcast, so we will link to those in the show notes, um, including some which are explicitly anti-war which uh, both of these are. Yeah, so when the Oscar nominations came out, I definitely saw some people or like heard people on podcasts that aren't specifically like Oscar podcasts being like, how did this movie I've never heard of get nine nominations? Like what is going on? I feel like a lot of this probably has to do with Netflix being like, this is our chance. We have to pour money into this. I don't know. But I had read some stuff that suggested to me that the sort of political message of the movie, the original movie in the book was not conveyed in the new film, which is what made me want to do this episode. And you have confirmed that for me. So that's dispiriting, but we will talk about that more later in the episode. I figure we should start with a brief bio of the director, Lewis Milestone. I don't know a ton about him. This is definitely like the big movie that he made, although he had some other notable titles. And I think the most interesting angle on this movie, if you're if we're just talking about it for an hour, is probably not him, but it's obviously useful to have a little bit of information. I think the most salient thing to know about him is that he was born in Russia and that he was Jewish and lived there for 18 years, um, was educated in Jewish schools, and then moved to Hoboken when he was 18. And served in the Signal Corps in World War One, which was like the World War One equivalent of the World War II 
like film propaganda units that we've discussed in various episodes, and then went out to Hollywood, sort of worked his way up as many people did. He did a lot of silent films. And I was just scrolling through Wikipedia and I was like, I've never heard of any of these movies, which doesn't mean that they weren't hits or weren't good. Like, I'm not an expert in silent cinema, but it definitely wasn't a list of like, oh, of course, the great film. Yeah. I mean, he's certainly era, a director know? who is known for one masterpiece. Yeah. The two sort of big ones after All Quiet on the Western Front are um, The Front Page, which is the precursor to His Girl Friday, and then In the Late 30s of Mice and Men, which definitely was also a hit. And then he, again, worked in the sort of propaganda wing of the military in World War II. After that was kind of graylisted, so he wasn't officially blacklisted, but kind of made more schlocky stuff because he wasn't getting offers to make better things because he had been involved in radical politics. The most surreal thing that I learned, which I had not known, is that he directed the first Ocean's Eleven, <laughs> which was just like, <laughs> what a life. Um, sure. But this movie came out in 1930, sort of right at the pivot between silent and sound, which we'll talk about more. And I think his career obviously spanned those two genres and this movie is really interesting in that way and it's kind of fascinating that he just kept going for decades and decades after he didn't die until 1980 which again is surreal to think about and the cut of the movie had been changed dramatically during world war ii and his like dying wish was that it be restored yeah because of course during world war ii the government is like well this is far too sympathetic to the germans even though the germans were politically and historically a completely different bunch of people but um yeah they kind of did one of their famous butchering jobs on this during that era yeah, so it was finally restored 20 years later, which I have to suspect, I'm speculating here, but I think it must be that this was after the, that was two years after the big Oscar and box office success of Saving Private Ryan, and to a lesser extent, The Thin Red Line. So I feel like that's there's probably a connection there, but um, certainly this is his best movie. Um, maybe Ocean's Eleven is the best known, but this is the sort of the masterpiece. And then the other sort of major figure involved in this movie that I'll just go through quickly is Lou Ayers, who plays Paul, who is a really interesting figure in this period of Hollywood in that he basically has two movies he's really well known for. One is this, which was not technically his first film role, but like functionally was. And so the movie was such a phenomenon that his career kind of suffered afterward because everyone just knew him as Paul Baumer. And so he was acting, but not in like big parts. He also directed on Poverty Row during the 30s. And the movie that kind of launched him again as more of an adult was Holiday, the romantic comedy with Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn in 1938, which is one of my favorite movies ever made. And we can talk more about his performance in this as we go on, but it's the performance in Holiday is much more naturalistic and like adult. Um, he plays basically Katherine Hepburn's like, sad gay alcoholic brother obviously they can't say that he's gay but it's barely subtextual and it's a wonderful wonderful performance he was in like a, another hollywood franchise called like the dr kildare films that no one watches Lost anymore to the mists of time yeah but the sort of major story about him after holiday is that he became a conscientious objector in 1942 when Which the u.s like got involved basically unheard of for public figures to vocally be like, I don't agree with the war. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
I think very few people in general, yeah. like it was just seen as, as such a morally correct intervention. And he worked as a medic on the front lines. Like he went and was physically in battle as a medic while refusing yeah. to serve in the military. So it's like really impressive stuff, quite frankly. And I mean, he could very easily have died. There was a massive public scandal, like all of these articles about how he was a coward. I know there were some other big stars. I want to say Clark Gable, but I'm not positive, who were really supportive of him. But his career never really recovered after that point. But I mean, he explicitly said in interviews that it was because of the experience of making this movie that he didn't want to fight in the war. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. But yeah, he's kind of this like marginal figure in old Hollywood, but one who's also like quite important in a very specific kind of way. But let's get into the movie. I saw this at MoMA at a screening like five years ago or something, probably longer, just kind of went to it. I feel like because I'd re- we'd read the Mark Harris book about World War II and he talked about it and I was like, oh, it would be interesting to watch it. And I was completely... Like, I was, like, sitting in this theater with, like, five other people just having this profound, like, traumatic experience. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it because you just watched it for the first time. Yeah, I mean, it was very impressive, obviously. Definitely when contrasting it with the modern film, it's interesting to kind of look at the different acting styles because this is a very kind of 1930-era acting style, which is less naturalistic than you're used to if you only watch modern films, but it's still so emotionally affecting. It also really makes me want to see some of the silent epics because as a film that came out in 1930, it really is at this direct transitional point. We've kind of talked about this before in episodes where we talk about early cinema and the pre-code era, but basically in 1929 and 1930, the entire American film industry switched over from silent to sound. And during this two-year period, there were also quite a lot of films that were made for both silent viewing and sound. And this film has, first of all, the sound is great for something from this era. You definitely watch some films from 1930 and like you can tell they've not quite figured out the kinks yet. (laughs) But also it combines being a very dialogue-heavy narrative. Like there's conversations which you absolutely need to have to understand it. But also you can tell that it's a filmmaker who's kind of come up through silent filmmaking. And there's a lot of really long serious films like two to three hour long silent films that I basically haven't watched partly because I'm like that sounds like a little bit of a slog to watch a film that's three hours long and doesn't have any dialogue but it's like yeah actually I'm a dummy and I should go back and have a look at those you know (laughs) (laughs) this is kind of a reminder because this does feel it is a genuinely epic and I think a lot of the films that we do watch from this period are kind of chamber pieces you and I both love these movies that are like small rom-coms and like quirky pre-code films and this is a movie that has like tons of massive battle scenes and big casts and that sort of thing and it really feels weighty like it doesn't seem like there I mean obviously there are scenes where it's like a lot of people sitting in a small space talking but as I say it does feel like a true epic and there's a lot going on visually well I think Part of what makes this movie so interesting and remarkable, as I said, I'm not an expert on silent films. I have certainly seen, you know, quite a few of them, but there's, they made a lot of movies in the 1920s. But I wrote an article about this movie um, several years ago that we'll link to in Brightwell Dark Room. And I watched some other sort of World War One movies that have been made in the 20s and like up to around 1930, one of which is called The Big Parade by King Vidor. And that is more of your classical, like, 
American silent film epic like you're talking about. Like, I think it's around three hours. And it has more of the stylistic things that we associate with silent films. Like, the actors are doing silent film acting in terms of, like, being very large because they can't talk. Yeah. And it's about an American soldier who goes and fights in France. And, like, he falls in love with a French girl. So there's this, like, cute romance going on. But also the horror of war. And the war stuff is really awful. It's kind of shockingly appalling. And that's from the mid-20s, I think. And I mean, when it was very fresh in everyone's minds, you know. Well, this is what I find so interesting about this sort of micro genre of of World War Two movie, World War One movies, rather, that are being made within like seven to 15 years of the end of the war. They have a rawness and fury and grief that I don't think is really matched by any other subgenre of at least like anglophone film because by the time you get to world war ii movies have just been more professionalized they're more of a cultural yeah. sort of and thing. the people who were big stars and in power were by that point shielded from the most dangerous parts of obligatory military service so it's like when you look at the films that are being made in the 1910s and 1920s most of the people making them have a lot of grimy experience with real life, which is not the case now. <laughs> but even in the 40s, like if you if we go back to that Mark Harris book, Five Came Back, that we talk about all the yeah. time, <laughs> you know, a, a lot of those, the directors who he's writing about in that book had like pretty grimy childhoods. Yeah. And well, some they were all like in their 50s, you know. Yeah. And a lot of them went and were filming stuff at the front and clearly were traumatized by that experience. I mean, one of them sort of filmed the sort of discovery of the, the concentration camps, which fucked him up for the rest of his life. But the propaganda machine of Hollywood and the government combined meant that that kind of experience was just not going to get into movies. Yeah. After the fact, the one exception to that, I think, is The Best Years of Our Lives, which came out in 1946, was directed by William Wyler, who was one of those directors who went and shot stuff on the front. And it's not about the experience of war, but it's about veterans coming back and is very frank and emotionally open and is just like a tremendous, tremendous film. But otherwise, you just got a lot of like... Propaganda movies made during the war, and then after the war... It's just, you enter the denial era, where everything is just like schmaltz and the fake image of happy suburban life. Yeah, and like the noirs that are made in the 40s clearly are a reaction to the war, but it's all filtered through something else. And World War I, I think the, the like traumatic shock of industrial warfare... Not that World War II wasn't also horrible and traumatizing for everyone, but... I just read a, a big history book on this and like reading about the descriptions of what these guys were going through, especially at the big battles like the Somme and Verdun, is like incomprehensible to our minds. Like we just can't fathom it. And because that hadn't ever happened before, they clearly were just like, what the fuck? And there's no way to narrativize that war after the fact that makes it yeah like morally good, right? And in this book I was reading, um, I don't have the title off the top of my head, but I'll link to it too, because it was really good. He sort of in the conclusion is like, you know, the narrative of this war now is that it was a total waste of time. And I think what's fascinating about these movies is that this movie comes out 12 years after the end of the war. And already they're like, this was a huge mistake. Like this was absolute hell. There's nothing 
valuable about this at all. And there were other movies that are saying basically the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, it was very much kind of in line with it was far more socially acceptable to be voicing anti-war sentiments during that kind of mid-war period before World War II kicked in, where people were just like, you know, there was a lot more left-wing activism. Obviously, the entire generation had been traumatized by grief and the horrors of World War I. And then you reach World War II and then there's this sudden effort to make everyone really pro-war again for like politically, ideologically completely different reasons. But, you know. Well, and I think part of what is fascinating as an American watching this movie too is that obviously in the UK, like World War I is remains this massive cultural weight hanging over everyone in a really unproductive and sort of like fake history kind of way. Yeah. Like it's not engaging with the reality of what happened, but certainly the the fact of that war has not gone away in the UK. Whereas here, it's not like people don't know that it happened, but we're all about World War II because we can be like, we won the war, <laughs> the Nazis were bad, which of course, true, they were bad. <laughs> but there were a lot of other complicated factors in that war that were not just like, you know, thumbs up, like a good time that have been totally glossed over. And World War One, as a result, kind of just gets swept aside. And of course, there weren't as many American troops deployed in that war. And, it, you know, we were involved for a pretty short period of time. But you can tell watching this movie that it had a profound effect on the culture and on the people who went one of the things that I wrote about in that essay is that, like the anti-German propaganda at work in America and also in the, the UK and other ally countries was completely just like over the top out of control. Yeah. Basically depicting Germans as like racialized, unhuman rapists. But then the war was over. <laughs> and there are a lot of Germans or like people of German descent in America. It's like one of the top ethnicities, nationalities, whatever. And so then kind of what happens? And I think... One of the really provocative things about this movie is that they cast all these, like, cute American boys <laughs> to be these German soldiers. They're not doing accents. They're just, like, nice white kids, right? And then it's sort of like, well, they don't seem that bad, which is obviously an intentional decision to make audiences sort of confront that instinct that may still have been sort of lingering inside their minds even years after the war had been over. Yeah, I mean, the introduction of this film is so good. Like, it's just got such a good opening because it begins in this small German town where there's a parade where they're kind of waving off all these soldiers to war. And this is the point, like, really early on where it's so obvious that he's a silent film director because there's this fantastic sort of visual framing where you see all of the stuff that's happening outside in the streets and then it kind of zooms back in to the interior of a building which turns out to be a classroom. There's several shots in the film where there's just all these like visual layers going on in a really effective way but um, yeah they introduce this classroom with this kind of long speech scene where this rather obnoxious middle-aged teacher is giving <laughs> this completely florid speech about them being like you know the iron youth of Germany and the hope of the future and the great generation and all this stuff and these teenagers are just like so childish and stupid you know they're just like a bunch of empty-headed teenagers and they do actually look like teenagers and the film kind of gives these little dream sequences just like showing what they're thinking about and fantasizing about when 
this guy is giving this propaganda speech being like, oh, you're going to be a hero and you're kind of imagining their mothers being so proud of them joining the military and this sort of thing. And they clearly know nothing about what's going on. And of course, there is no discussion about why the war is happening because like that's not relevant to the discussion at hand. And then they all go off and sign up into the army. And there's like a long sequence, like half an hour to 45 minutes, which is basically them just like gradually having this sort of naivety stripped away during training. But it still has this very kind of perky boys own adventure vibe because they're just these like dummies. So they go to this training camp where they have a horrible time and are bullied by this drill sergeant, but they get their revenge by pranking the drill sergeant, you know. And then, and then the next section is they finally arrive at the front where they're confronted with older soldiers who, some of them are like clearly career soldiers who'd been in the military for a while and have like a bit more experience and worldly knowledge. And they're kind of inhabiting this half-wrecked village and they're learning that they're going to have to like scavenge for food and they're matched up with this sergeant character who kind of takes them under his wing. His name is Kaczynski. And he is this middle-aged guy played by the actor Louis Walheim, who has this fantastic face. He played a lot of bruisers, apparently. I feel like I must have seen him in something. But like, he has an extremely distinctive, tough-looking face and provides this immediate visual contrast with all these teenage boys. <laughs> and he's sort of teaching them like, oh, the first thing you need to do is like figure out how to steal food and this sort of thing. Basically guiding them through their first few days of trench warfare where several characters are very quickly picked off and they end up in this small set piece where they all spend their first night together being bombed while in one of these trench shelters, which is this horribly claustrophobic environment full of rats. And you really quickly get to see very recognisable symptoms of shell shock, which is one of the really interesting elements of this as a film that is so old and is therefore not permitted the same level of violence and also can't utilise the same level of special effects that we're used to in modern films. And also is working with a different style of acting. And even with all of those sort of artistic and historical barriers between what a modern viewer is used to seeing and the story they're trying to transmit is still so effective because you can really see that they're working from experience. At this point, there were a lot of German immigrants working in Hollywood and I think a lot of them were working on this film and as consultants. There were people who were had first-hand experience in World War One. It's this kind of combination of these set pieces that could almost be a stage play where people are having conversations about the pointlessness of war and like why are we here and just also still being goofy young men and then zooming out into these big brutal battle scenes where you see people dying horribly and there was also a very famous scene that apparently is in the book but I've not read the book where the main character is stuck in this big crater full of water with a French soldier who he kills by hand and as this man is dying he has this change of heart and realises that this guy is just like another young man and tries to save his life but obviously can't because he's killed him and is filled with grief the story is just a series of quite short sequences and like extended action scenes that are strung together and the main arc has less to do with the plot and more to do with the emotional trajectory of the main character as he is just like put through more and more trauma and grows up by the end he kind of feels like a veteran so a couple things just to sort of explain the book a little bit i'm sure many of our listeners have read it because it's something that is often 
I mean, or at least was often assigned in high school classes and that kind of thing. I hadn't read it until I wrote this article about the movie and I felt like I had to read the book. It is, of course, fantastic, as you would expect a classic of this stature to be. Um, It's very much like a modernist novel, which of course makes sense because that's the period when modernism is happening. So you've got these sort of like, again, like vignettes like in the movie, but in an even more sort of... I don't want to say stream of consciousness way, but you've just got these little almost like snippets of bits of his experience. And it's written in this very, this style where it sort of, I think, veers from being like really emotionally devastated to being kind of detached. As I recall, it's been a while since I read it. Um, I think the most distinct difference between the movie and the novel is that the movie obviously just like has to have more of a coherent plot because it's a film. Even though, as you say, there's not like a plot plot, but it's just a little more solid. Like, you know, the characters a little bit more, especially the supporting characters, whereas the book is really all in Paul's head. And the movie is funnier because it's a Hollywood Hollywood production. You get the kind of like yuck, yuck humor. But I think it's pretty true to the book. Like they change some stuff, but in terms of the essential events and also like what the book is doing thematically, I think it's... I mean, I think it's a really good adaptation. And what the the book is ultimately trying to do basically is show that this is completely dehumanizing to this person and by extension, all of these people. And the movie does that really brilliantly. And part of how it accomplishes that are these combat scenes that you were just talking about, which I think are absolutely... (laughs) incredible when i first saw it i just kept thinking like this was made in 19 yeah i mean there's a lot of when you get to the more large scale scenes where there was obviously kind of bombings and like extended battlefields i was just like how are they doing these stunts or i mean they're just blowing people up like (laughs) so this was filmed partly as a sound film and partly as a silent film so i know that all this the combat stuff was filmed as a silent film and then they added the sound effects in after Uh so that allowed them to use the camera in a much more fluid way. So basically, by the end of the silent era, people were doing all kinds of unbelievably experimental and thrilling stuff with the camera. And then once sound comes, there's this entire new like mechanical apparatus yeah. that means that the camera has to pretty much be still. Which is why you have so many great movies from the early 30s, which are a bunch of people standing in a room talking in witty dialogue. <laughs> yes, with, with the camera just being like, we're just going to stay here and not move. And there are a lot of sequences like that in this movie, as you were saying, where you kind of have like a feeling of a play, but it always feels intentional as opposed to yeah. being restricted. And it's like even you though want I'm sure- it to look claustrophobic when they're literally in yeah. a bomb shelter. Right. But in the combat sequences, the camera is incredibly fluid. And one thing I was thinking about a lot watching it this time is that it's not constrained by the sort of cinematic or visual language of like war in quotes as the movies have come to understand war in the, you know, almost a century since, because even though there were, of course, other World War One movies that were made before this, it wasn't a standard genre where you'd get a movie like this every year. And so the first big sequence where they get to the front and immediately people are being slaughtered, obviously emotionally is just devastating because the scales are just falling off of their eyes instantaneously and they realize this is going to be horrible. But even though there's not like graphic violence, you completely understand the terror of what's going on. And um, 
There's one very famous image of like a pair of hands that have been detached from a body, like hanging onto barbed wire, which obviously is for the time like pretty extreme. There's this big thing with a pair of boots in this movie, and there's a whole sequence where he just sort of follows the pair of boots like through battle as we see them on like one person after another dying. And it feels completely new to be focusing on an image in that way. And I feel like if you did that now, it would feel a little like hokey, but it doesn't feel that way at all. And I think part of that is that the movie just has no sense of like irony. It's completely sincere. Yeah. The one sequence, the battlefield sequence that I think is just visually totally shocking and incredible is when Paul is in that bomb crater with the soldier he's killed that you were describing before. And he keeps looking up and we see footage of men jumping over him. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever seen that in a movie. It just feels so unusual as an image. And yet, of course, that's exactly what he would be looking yeah. at. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems like something that came from real life accounts. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's both just visually really, really distinctive and also gives you the sense of sort of like, this is not an image you would ever see in normal life. Like, this is just, you're just so completely destabilized in this bizarre position. And I mean, also on a kind of more general structural level, it's protagonist focused, but he has no agency, which is sort of the yeah. whole message of all media about World War One, which is mm-hmm. that he's just completely helpless. He's in this situation, he's getting pulled from place to place, and his only goal is to stay alive. And when you compare that to something like 1917, that film is not saying World War One is great, but it is straightforwardly an action movie with a protagonist who is trying to complete a heroic mission, which is the case for a lot of modern war films, obviously by definition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had already seen this, I think not too long before I saw 1917. I remember just being like, I'm infuriated. <laughs> like, I, I hate Yeah, this. I mean, I thought 1917 was an impressive directorial accomplishment, but like, even within like a couple of weeks after watching it, I was like, this is propaganda. <laughs> well, especially if you watch some of the other movies about this war from the time, the other one I would strongly recommend is a German film called West Front 1918 that I can't remember in great detail because it kind of blurred in my mind with this one, but it's, I just remember that it was incredible. Even bleaker than this, if that's possible. Because they don't have the sort of, like, American yuck, yuck stuff. The idea of making a movie about that war that, like, celebrates an individual accomplishment and where you have the sort of, like, rich (laughs) upper-class commanders in supportive roles. I was just like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that movie's basically a video game. Like, that's the experience you're having watching it. Obviously, very technically impressive, but it's completely without any political textual valence. Obviously, the political valence is subtextual, and it's that war is great. By contrast, this movie is, like, shockingly political, especially from our position in, like, the 21st century, where all military films are, like, collaborative projects with the Pentagon. (laughs) So, you know, I've seen this multiple times before I watched it again over the last couple days, and I still felt kind of shocked by the explicitness with which this movie rejects not only war, which like, I think that you have plenty of people across the world who would be like, war is bad, but nationalism as a concept, which of course is the driving force behind the First World War, right? There's a scene near the end of the movie where Paul has gotten injured, he goes back home on leave 
And um, we immediately see that he's totally alienated from the world. Like, he can't really engage with his family. He just kind of can't function. He goes and, like, sees his dad and his dad's friends at the pub. And they're all, like, basically backseat driving the war. And they have a map. And they're like, well, what you really have to do is cut through at this point. And, like, you don't really know what you're doing. But, of course, you're a hero. And he's just like, what is happening? Like, (laughs) these idiots. Like, But he goes back to his school where the same teacher who had sort of exhorted the students to go fight in the war is doing the same to a new class and they have deliberately cast like 14 year olds i mean they are tiny kids and the teacher wants him to tell them how great being a soldier is and he literally says i'm going to find the exact quote You still think it's beautiful and sweet to die for your country, don't you? He's speaking to the teacher, of course. We used to think you knew. The first bombardment taught us better. It's dirty and painful to die for your country. When it comes to dying for your country, it's better not to die at all. There are millions out there dying for their countries, and what good is it? Which, I mean, I still find that shockingly radical. You basically don't see that sentiment in movies. And also, I mean, this sequence where he goes home kind of mid-war and is confronted by, you know, he goes and meets his family as well. And like his mum has absolutely no idea how much danger he's in. And his sister just like kind of seems unworried. People don't seem to understand what's happening to the men because like they just can't conceive of how bad, you know, the warfare is. And it definitely seems like something that's playing very well into the audience at the time because obviously everyone who's watching this film now knows about World War One, presumably, and knows how traumatic it was for the survivors and their families. But everyone watching this then obviously had that kind of first-hand knowledge. So everything we see with the relationship between the young men and their former lives and their families just feels like foreshadowing for the historical events that happen after the film finishes. Because you see this psychological and experiential disconnect between these sort of naive, clueless people at home and the fact that like no person can ever go through that kind of trench warfare and come out the other side remotely sane like you can't just go back home and pick up your life and go to college or whatever so like of course you're all going to be fucked up and you know they didn't know this in 1930 but like that's the entire national mindset that then leads to the rise of the nazis you know yeah and again as you say like of course that was not an intentional subtext to the movie, but it it haunts the film. And Paul has been wounded, so I don't... I believe in the book he doesn't have to go back, and he chooses to because he's just like, I can't deal with these people. Um, We see in the movie he goes back early because he just sort of can't tolerate them. And the only sort of place he's comfortable is at the front with his fellow soldiers. There was an anecdote in this book I just read about Siegfried Sassoon, who wound up being sent to like a cushy mental institution for a while because he had written a letter to parliament basically saying that the war was a travesty. And they were like, we think that you're having shell shock. (laughs) Like, let's just send you away because they didn't want to have a public trial, which would have gotten more attention for this. But he eventually went back to the front and he was a sergeant, I think. He He was in charge of some number of men. And there's some line about like, well, I have to take care of them. And the feeling of, and obviously this has been, you know, depicted, written about extensively the feeling of just like intense solidarity with other people who are at war with you is incredibly profound. But in this movie, we see both the beauty of those relationships and how painful they are because everybody fucking dies. And that it's another way 
that they experience alienation from everyone who is not in that position. You know, you mentioned the the older soldier who kind of takes them under his wing with the amazing face. And that's really the central relationship in the film is between him and Paul. And the whole time we kind of know, well, this is doomed, right? And basically everyone from that classroom at the beginning is dead by the end of the movie. I do want to talk a little bit about the acting before we sort of expand to the political reception of the film and talk about the new one. Um, You mentioned the fact that the acting is obviously not (laughs) as naturalistic as it might be in a later movie, but I also found the the shell shock stuff particularly affecting from all of these young actors who are kind of like mannered (laughs) and a little bit much like not in a way that yeah i mean there's scenes like there's a sequence where one of the characters has his leg amputated and people go and visit him in hospital and they have these very just like schmaltzy conversations kind of holding each other's hands and stuff and i'm like this is like effective but it is also very much of its time and sentimental yeah but that's contrasted with the noises that all the young guys make when they're experiencing like extreme terror and pain even though they're kind of performed in an extreme way you kind of feel like the sentiment deserves that in some way and the older actors there's the guy we've been talking about and then another person who's kind of like the comic relief of the movie are more naturalistic you have to imagine that there's some vaudeville (laughs) background going on for them and it's kind of appropriate that they feel a little bit more normal. The Sergeant Cat guy has this sidekick pal who's kind of the comic relief. His actor's name was Slim Somerville. And he oh. had a 30-year career playing comedic bit roles starting in early comedic shorts like the Keystone Cops. And he was hired because he looked weird and an actor met him in a pool bar. This is the kind of early Hollywood stuff that I I yearn to know. That's perfect. He's absolutely wonderful. And he, I mean, obviously you can tell he's performing in an old Hollywood movie, but it feels more like something you would get in the mid to late 30s. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's like, he's playing a funny role because he's this like goofy, weird character with a strange appearance, but he genuinely feels like very hangdog and tragic at the same time. Yep. Ayers, I think, is interesting. I think he's he's quite mannered at the beginning of the movie and gets less so as the movie goes on and Paul gets more depressed, which kind of feels appropriate for what's going on in the movie, that he's this sort of like, gosh golly, American kid at the beginning and they just get sadder and sadder. He's much better in terms of like pure acting as we would now think about it in Holiday, but... I think there's something really special about him in this. I mean, they did like, I think they did one of the huge casting things where they were looking at a lot of people for it. And he just has this perfect sad face that's also very beautiful. And you do really need someone who feels like this epitome of like the golden youth that's getting wasted. And he's this, he's like very skinny and small. And the fact that he isn't this, like, big, brawny guy, I think is really important because obviously he's a soldier and is killing people, but it's not like he's a He-Man type. Like, it just, he just feels very out of place in a lot of ways. I definitely think if you haven't seen movies from this era, that initially the the acting style could, could be a little bit tough. But I think if you just stick with it, it definitely winds up being very rewarding. And it's just how they did it back then. Like, that's... 
It is what it is. Marlon Brando hadn't come around yet. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, another thing I'd note on a very different angle, <laughs> but with the the relationship between the sergeant character and Paul and the other young men, is it's one of the many scenarios I've had throughout my adult life where I discover that one of my beloved Terry Pratchett books is intentionally drawing from a great piece of classic art. <laughs> um <laughs> Listen to our episode on Nightwatch, my favourite Discworld novel. But um, yeah, I don't know if you've read Terry Pratchett's book, Monstrous Regiment. His Discworld fantasy novels, a lot of them are kind of work partially as like a parody of like a piece of literature or something. And this one is like his big war novel or one of his big war novels. And it's not World War One. it's more kind of 19th century. And it's about... Uh, a young woman who joins the army when there's just like the dregs of people are left to be recruited. And she ends up in like this horrible kind of pointless, stupid civil war with a bunch of other young weedy recruits and then this old tough sergeant. And the twist is that virtually everyone in the military is now a woman who's a man in disguise because all the men have been killed off. And the dynamic between that sergeant and all these young women slash men in their group is like so clearly just what's happening in this film. And that book is a lot less grim and is trying to do slightly different things politically. But it's like, oh, okay, wow, he really did just do like a parody of All Quiet on the Western Front, especially all the stuff to do with food, because obviously the driving force for a lot of this movie is just them trying to find stuff to eat. And then also like, the government not being able to feed them, obviously, because like they're on their last legs. And then everyone back home being like, well, our our army's getting the best of the food, nothing but the best for our lads. And they're like, I am scavenging from the dregs of the remaining burned out farms. They do find a bunch of food when they go hook up with the French lady. Yes. On that occasion, they manage it. And then like swim with loaves of Wet bread, bread through the river. It's like, mm, yum, yum. <laughs> That scene is also, I think, perfectly done in a way where, like, obviously it's kind of a trope that, like, the visiting soldiers are going to hook up with the local girls. But, A, we understand what the women are really after, which is food. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing because the Um, men are like, oh, I'm so excited to, like, spend some time with these ladies. And they are literally, like, stuffing bread into their mouths (laughs) like vultures. (laughs) But the main woman that Paul is interacting with just keeps calling him, like, poor boy in French and there's a scene where we can't we we can't see them because of course they're naked and that's that's not allowed but he's saying to her like I'm never gonna see you again and but like I'll never forget this and she keeps being like oh this like the war is awful in French and it winds up being sort of one of the brighter spots of the movie because there just needs to be some release point but you still can't forget that the situation that's hanging over them is awful. Also a great use of in a 1930 movie. They're clearly all naked for like, <laughs> yeah, but they're kind of like patting the camera over to the wall. <laughs> and they like put on like little, you know, like jackets that the women have and then like go out of the room and then like their arm comes back around to like hang it over the hook. And I was like, I, I do love this. <laughs> so the book was released in 1929. So like, very shortly before this, and immediately became the best-selling novel in the entire world. Or, you know, whatever country's data they were tracking, obviously, I'm sure it was, you know, mainly selling in European 
America, but um, it was a like beyond a phenomenon. Like we don't have books like this anymore. So of course, you know, Hollywood immediately sets up this project, and um, it became similarly a phenomenon of a film in the United States. It won like best production or something, which is best picture speak in like one of the first Oscar ceremonies. Milestone won best director, and obviously had a real impact in terms of like rehabilitating the image of Germany in the United States. When I was writing this article a few years ago, I did some research on its reception in Germany and was really interested to see that it basically sparked riots there by like proto-Nazis. Or I mean, I think they were probably called Nazis already. Goebbels was one of the people in one of these riots. And one of the like the university in Berlin was sort of the hotbed for this kind of reactionary sentiment. So I mean, I'll just, I'll just read a couple sentences from this. That um, this group of Nazis uh, heckled the screen, threw stink bombs, uh, released mice, and then like police were called to sort of shut this down at the premiere in Berlin in December of 1930. And the main student association at the university wanted the film to be banned and said that it made a mockery of the sense of sacrifice Germany had experienced during the war. I think it was eventually released in a couple cities in Germany, but not for very long. And it, it basically was repressed. But it feels so <laughs> ironic and grim, given where we know Germany is headed only a couple years later, that this movie that is about the futility of the war and very sympathetic to these German soldiers is received by a certain portion of German people at this time as like, Oh, you're mocking the grandeur of World War I. Yeah. And also, I have to say, when I was reading about that, it also made me think of just how strategic that campaign is. You know, it's very yeah. familiar today. It's also extremely effective, where it's like they have intentionally set out to go and sabotage this film because they don't want its message to go out. It's not like it was a kind of spontaneous yeah. outpouring of sentiment. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're releasing mice at the premiere of a movie, that's that's planned in advance. <laughs> But of course, I mean, Hitler would be elected two years later. And so this sense of like Germany as the victim of the war, which it was in many ways, and that sort of victimhood being the, the driving force in the beginning of the sort of. And also rise just the like Reich. the amount in which the propaganda for the Nazis was centered around the idea of powerful heroic german men being like the arbiters of justice and greatness and it's like that doesn't really yeah. gel with a movie where it's a bunch of frightened boys well and they all fucking yeah. died so you know not great for conscription yeah i mean one of the in this book i was reading i don't have the exact stats in front of me but the percentage of men from the age of you know 18 to 32 or whatever who died in the uk france and germany was like staggering beyond comprehension so you know, obviously there were some, but it's easy for that message to be hijacked by other people, which is exactly what happened by Hitler. So that's 93 years ago. 2022, Netflix releases a new version of this movie directed by a German man whose name I can't remember, but I'm relying on you for the information for this part of the podcast. Edward Berger. Edvard Berger. And he gives an interview to The Rap. I'm just going to read a quote. The main reason to make it is because it's a German book. 
When the producer suggested it, it felt so obvious. It had been sitting there waiting to be made and no one had done it. But also there's a fundamental difference in the perception of war if it comes from a perspective of someone who won or who liberated Europe. That comes from a place of heroism and sometimes also glorification. We won, we beat the enemy, and so on. And I totally understand. That's the heritage, rightfully so. But Germany is the only country in the world, to my knowledge, that two times in the last century succumbed to their destructive impulses and brought terror to the world out of a sense of nationalism and superiority. And that leaves us leaves in us a sense of guilt, shame, horror, terror. Nothing good came out of it, you know, just scars and damage. So automatically, a war film made in Germany will feel very, very different than an American film. No. I find this (laughs) extremely dubious. Without having read the book, just as a caveat, to me, that quote seems to me either willfully disingenuous to market this movie for Netflix or a complete misunderstanding of the 1930 film, or maybe like he, I mean, presumably he's seen it, like he must have seen it, but absolutely not reflected either in the 1930 film or in the new one, which is actively a worse movie. Um, Shall I get into it, Morgan? Yes, I'm going to read one more quote from this. I just kept scrolling down the article and I was just like, what is happening? So the interviewer says, in America during World War II, films became part of the war effort and you could watch You would watch them not only rooting for the characters to survive, but rooting for them to win. Um, And he replies, and kill the other guy. With this, ideally, you don't root for the Germans to kill the other guy, but you do want everyone to survive, you know? Every death is going to be a terrible death. It's like, have you watched any of the movies about this war from the past? Like, what is happening? From the World War II angle, like, I do get what he's saying about those propaganda films from Hollywood, but... But that's not relevant to this. No, it's immaterial. I, I'm just shocked. Yeah, I mean, there's a pretty solid public stance on World War One, which is sympathy toward everyone who died. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so this movie, as I said at the beginning, the fact that it starts with trench warfare and is primarily trench warfare is just bizarre and a very strange mistake to me. Basically, it kind of compresses the entire introductory sequence where we see Paul and the other boys join the military and then go into training. There's barely any training at all. It's basically about five to ten minutes. And then the rest of the film is all at the front, interspersed with scenes where we see negotiations for the armistice led by a bunch of German and French leaders, most of whom are comically unsympathetic because they're just like these you know, sheltered posh bastards who are eating a bunch of delicious food while the boys die on the front. And then you've got um, the very well-known actor Daniel Bruhl is kind of the one sympathetic figure among these because he's the guy who wants to just get the war finished as soon as possible because he knows that loads of young men are dying because his son has already died on the front lines. But there is a lot of scenes in this which are clearly, you know, taken from the book and therefore resemble scenes that we saw in the original film. And pretty much all of them are not as good as the ones in the original film. The characterization is far weaker and the emotional arc is completely gone because as we said, like the original film creates this trajectory where you see these boys transforming from naive goofballs into either dead people or deeply traumatized individuals. And in this film, you barely get any of that prologue where you kind of meet these men as just like normal guys because they are almost immediately put into the trenches and then picked off. So you don't get that development. The relationship between Paul and Kat is also far more limited. And 
I mean, they've definitely characterized Kat in a very different way. They've kind of just changed that character. So it's a different vibe. He's younger. You know, he's talking about his wife and his son. And he's kind of this like more sort of good looking, relatable guy rather than this more paternal figure. But it's not very effective. Even basic stuff like kind of making you sympathize with how hungry they are. Like there are a bunch of scenes involving food and looking for food. But to me, it just didn't work as well because you don't have this contrast between how easy their lives were before and how hard their lives are now because it's this big, long plateau of just mud and horror and like extreme violence because in a modern film, you have, you know, you have all these special effects and you have a big budget and we now have all this infrastructure to make films like this. Obviously, it's going to get a lot of comparisons with 1917, but 1917 is a far better action movie if we are judging these both as action movies obviously this is not pure action but like they're both films which are meant to be simultaneously showing you how awful it was to be in the trenches and also provide a spectacle the ethics of that of which you know make your own decisions (laughs) for example like you were saying in the original film there is that scene where you see people kind of jumping over the trench and it feels like so effective And in this, that is replaced by a scene where you see French tanks approaching right at the end and they kind of go over and you see someone just like completely get crushed and splatted and it's incredibly gruesome and awful. And there's loads of scenes which are really gruesome. And I'm like, this is very unpleasant to watch. Obviously, I've seen worse in out-and-out horror movies, but it's not as emotionally affecting because the structure of the film seems to completely misunderstand how to immerse you emotionally in the story. And it compares unfavorably to other anti-war films as well. Like we did an episode on the the film Come and See, which is about a Nazi occupation in Belarus. And it's just the most upsetting and horrible film I've ever seen in my life. It, it draws very closely from real life experiences and it's just like incredibly traumatic. But like this just seems so shallow and misguided by comparison. Another weird detail is that it has this music that's kind of like Inception style action music that's like... And I wouldn't say it's bad, it's just inappropriate for the subject at hand. So I'm just confused. As always, the Oscars frequently nominate films that are undeserving. I would say this in itself is a solid film with kind of a boring structure that's very well shot and doesn't really have much to say on a thematic or emotional level. Like the young actors do a good job, obviously. But when you compare it to the film from 1930, it's very much like, what's the point? And when you listen to that quote you just gave, I'm like, what is he talking about? <laughs> because it doesn't, it doesn't like offer a perspective where you're like, wow, I really understand the German perspective better now. I'm like, the way they're portraying the politics in this is actively hokier and less smart than what they were doing in the old film. Yeah, and Jamel Bowie in the Times wrote an op-ed on this that we'll link to, and he was just like, this movie doesn't get it at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to write a compare and contrast for my far yeah. less prestigious publication, The Daily Dot, next <laughs> week. <laughs> but he pointed out that the they cut out the scene where, where Paul goes back to school and says, like, it's ugly and horrible to die for your country, which to me is the thesis of the work of art. That's taken from the book. It's in the original movie. It's in the, like, TV remake from 1979 I've never seen that I'm sure is fine. But that's that's what the movie is about. In the book, it is saying that the nationalistic project of war is fundamentally empty. Um, there's another great scene we didn't talk about where in the in the original where the soldiers are like, "How does war even start?" And they're like, "Well, one country gets mad at another country," and they're like, "Do the mountains get mad at each other?" Like, I don't have any problem with the French, and it is funny, but it also kind of gets to the like inherent absurdity of 
the concept of countries going to war with each other, especially, of course, in the First World War when truly that war is about. Yeah. And also, it's just like the deep weirdness of being alive in 1930 and within recent memory being able to think of a war that happened with like a king in charge. (laughs) Yeah. And they even say, like, one of the soldiers says in that scene, like, oh, well, it's making a bunch of people money, which is the real. The real reason that World War One happened is that people were paranoid about, you know, empires falling apart and who had charge of the oil and everything. And then all the, the colonies rebelled anyway. So, <laughs> you know, jokes on them. But um, I just don't understand why you would make this if that's not the aim. And I was thinking about when I was reading about it, and we were texting about it, the sort of famous Truffaut quote about how, you know, there's no such thing as an anti-war movie because the inherent act of depicting war on screen is kind of a propaganda enterprise, which obviously I do think the original All Quiet is an anti-war movie. There's nothing glamorous about it. But I understand where he's coming from in the sense that so many war movies, even if they're nominally anti-war, like the spectacle thing that you're talking about kind of becomes the point of the movie and that can suck people in, even if they're sort of like, oh, that was so horrible. <laughs> There's kind of a quality that people can be like, that was so awful. Like, wow, it was amazing. And that's not really like accomplishing anything that productive, I don't think. The stuff I've read about this movie has all been like, it's very technically impressive, but question mark, you know? And the comparison is interesting. I say not having actually watched the movie, but obviously we do have like incredible technology now to be able to depict a lot of the really specific graphic violent stuff. And sometimes if you do that, as in come and see, which is not reliant on technology on the same way, but is incredibly graphic, the violence can accomplish something, right? Where you are feeling morally injured almost from watching the movie. But you don't actually need that to understand that this was horrible for people. And the other movie I was thinking about was Benediction, which I talked about briefly in our sort of year roundup yeah. episode, which is all about Siegfried Sassoon. And there's no scenes of battle or the trenches or anything in that film. It's all about his stay at that mental institution that I described earlier and him after the war. And what the director, Terrence Davis, does, which is so smart, is just use actual footage from World War One in a, a sort of like interstitials between scenes it's really graphic and upsetting. Like there's lots of dead bodies and it just looks horrifying. And that's so much more effective than like restaging anything. Right. Because you could just be like, yeah, this is what these people experienced. And now of course he's making a fictional movie in 2022 about that. Yeah. But you can imagine the emotional state that people were in, but kind of trying to recreate it almost feels like a, fool's errand to me yeah i mean it really i was kind of curious about that movie because i've heard obviously the benediction is very good and you kind of mentioned it in our podcast but um it really kind of illustrates the different philosophies and using the storytelling tools at hand right because the philosophy of the 1930 film obviously it does show for the period some pretty extreme violence and so forth but the emotional impact is all stuff that we understand through the impact on the characters we see their kind of psychological breakdown and we empathize with it. Whereas with the new film, it is far more to do with the idea of immersing us in the trenches and showing us stuff that's horrifying. 
which is a completely different technique and is a lot trickier ethically and also is harder to do when the audience is desensitized to violence and we already watch extreme violence for entertainment purposes. Yeah, and none of us can actually understand what it was like to be in a trench in World War One. I. I mean, I love Dunkirk. We talked about Dunkirk on this podcast, and that's a movie that is about people going through emotion, like physically hard circumstances. But it is a harder task to pull off because you have to <laughs> make the audience feel that same sense of dread and fear when we don't have any context for that, you know? Even people, like, I obviously can't speak to people who've been in the military now. I'm sure they would have, like, more of a context for that. But even so, like, that's still not trench warfare. (laughs) Like, it's a different thing, right? And if you're just sort of immersing us in that, then I, I just don't really understand what that's supposed to accomplish. Whereas when I watch the 1930 film, I'm emotionally sort of crushed by what all these people go through. The violence is still, or not even the violence, but, like, the, like, sensory overload of the combat scenes is still really shocking and upsetting and it's making a political point that i find i mean i agree with but i also find provocative so it's working on multiple levels i mean throughout the history of cinema right the sort of fetishization of the war movie is a a well-known phenomenon because it's manly and people like macho stuff but i don't think it always really does much and in this case it feels like again like why make this (laughs) like you can just watch the old one I know most people aren't watching movies from 1930 all the time, but the fact that it has Inception music especially is like, I don't really... One of the Oscar nominations it received. I know. Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, International Feature, Score, Sound, Production Design, Cinematography, Makeup and Hairstyling, and Visual Effects. Some of those, reasonable. Some others, not so much. (laughs) I mean, as we were texting about earlier, like the fact that this got all that stuff and Nope got nothing... The nope shutout is quite something. Uh, (laughs) Also a film about how like fetishizing the spectacle of Hollywood is is morally bad, right? It's like, well, they didn't want anything to do with that. And instead we're like, what about this spectacle war film? Like, let's give that all the numbers. It's just no comment. So yeah, I think we can safely say that we don't recommend the new one. I mean, honestly, the new one isn't interesting. Like, it's kind of boring. Well, that's also like just like endless combat. Not fun to watch. Just like what's going on? It's long too, right? It's two and a half hours. Yeah, that's that's long. We do highly recommend the 1930 film, which is free to stream on the Internet Archive. They have an HD version. So yeah, that's where I watched it. Very. Yep, me too. The sound is a little crackly just because it's old, it's but yeah. um, it's in great shape. Looks beautiful. Thanks to everyone for listening as always. We hope this has been a kind of, you know, educational episode. (laughs) Yeah. On our Patreon, we also have another vintage film. 1934 pre-code classic, The Thin Man. Much more lighthearted. Yeah, if you want to listen to us talk about an old movie that's not all about the hell of war, then you can listen to us be like, these guys are so cute. I don't remember what the murder's about. Like, that's pretty much what that episode is. Um, Another favorite of mine incredibly fun to talk about we have some requests to sort of finally get to and then some other things we've been thinking about so we will let you know on social media what we will be doing next and uh yeah our patreon if you do want to listen to that thin man episode is at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast we would also greatly appreciate a five-star rating uh and or review 
on whatever podcast service you use. It's really helpful for visibility. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing on The Daily Dot, where I've reviewed various movies recently. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor. Yes, and you will be writing about this too. So by the time people have listened, we'll have a link to that in our show notes. And I am on Letterboxd at ML Davies. I'm on Instagram at Morgan Lee Davies. The podcast is on (laughs) the increasingly defunct Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr and our Instagram is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and we will be talking to you soon. Bye.